I mentioned at the uh, beginning of our worship service that we do have uh, an upcoming uh, council meeting next week, and it's really to wrap up the, the conversation that we've been having the last few weeks about our vision and initiatives and the ways that we are trying to practically uh, work and live together here at Spring Creek and the ways that we are uh, striving to um, connect with the community around us, connect in a deeper way with one another, and uh, live out the kingdom. So we encourage you to come and, and offer feedback and uh, ask questions uh, next Sunday following our worship service. Uh, so come, come for that. Also want to extend an invitation to our uh, combined adult Sunday school. We are looking at a book called Surprise the World, Five Habits of Highly Missional People uh, by Mike Frost. Uh, we do have some extra books, so you can come and join us for that conversation. Um, and we are meeting down at the chapel uh, starting about 9.15 so that we can uh, have our conversation and then uh, get up here for uh, worship, so invite you to come and be a part of that. It's, it really is connected to our conversation here at Spring Creek about growing, sharing, and serving connected by Jesus, and um, someone else pointed that out this morning in our Sunday school. Um, it's, it's really all, all these conversations are, are connected to one another in how we're trying to uh, follow Jesus, be faithful to who God is calling us to be, um, so we encourage you to come and be a part of that. <coughs> Sorry about that. Over the summer, we are going to be coming back to uh, our, our dear friend that we started with last summer, and that is Isaiah. We spent all last summer kind of uh, marching through chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, and we uh, kind of camped out there at the end of chapter 39. And just uh, by way of a little bit of review, we were introduced to the 8th century B.C. prophet, Isaiah, who was speaking words of judgment against Israel and Judah for its failure to be faithful and really follow who Yahweh was calling those people to be. And uh, Isaiah is calling them out, challenging them, encouraging them, um, but ultimately, he sees where this story is headed, and for the people of Israel and the people of Judah, their, their unfaithfulness was going to result in exile. And at the end of chapter 39, we are left with Hezekiah being told where this story is about to head, and uh, Hezekiah says, well, at least my days will be filled with peace. Even though his children are going to deal with the consequences uh, of actions prior to them and they're going to be living in exile, uh, Hezekiah is okay that his days will be filled with peace. And then something really interesting happens. Nathaniel read our scripture for us this morning and we bridged from chapter 39 to chapter 40. And I don't know how that's laid out in your Bible. Maybe it's the turn of a page. Maybe there is no page turn. But between 39 and 40, please insert 200 years. All right, so we're going to be taking a look at that this morning and look at how the themes of judgment and hope continue to play out in this second part of Isaiah, how the themes and the words of hope continue to be spoken 
As we look at that this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Pray that you would speak through me or despite me and continue to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna start to dive into the text of Isaiah um, chapters 40 through 66 next week, but I do wanna give you a little bit of background information. I'm gonna try not to be too technical and too you know, teacher-ish, but you know, I also taught Sunday school and so that's kind of the mode I'm in this morning. Um, we're gonna begin to wade through the second part next week. Uh, when we've tackled some books of the Bible in the past, I like to give some background information about what is happening and the context in which the biblical writers were addressing. What kind of situations were they living in? What kind of issues were they tackling? Um, why did they write the way that they did? They don't write in a vacuum, right? The the Bible is not just a, a list of, of rules or good advice that are um, separated from a context. This is people living real lives and experiencing all kinds of real situations around them. And it's very helpful for us to know what some of those situations are. We did some of that last year at the beginning and we discussed Isaiah the prophet in around the 8th century B.C., uh, around 720, and discussed what was happening around Israel and Judah at that time. And Israel had largely fallen as a kingdom to uh, Assyria. They had been conquered. They had been unfaithful. They had raised up all kinds of high places of worship and they were not worshiping Yahweh. And so the kingdom of Israel is conquered very early. Uh, Judah is the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. And that kingdom kind of hangs on for a little bit longer. But eventually they too will uh, suffer the results of their unfaithfulness. Judah was a kingdom in crisis. It was a smaller kingdom on the border between Egypt and Assyria. And oftentimes in world history, we'll study Egypt. We might hear about Assyria or, or Babylon and, and Persia. But Judah was kind of right in the middle of them. And so often there were wars and battles fought between the competing empires of the world because they were kind of a border town between everybody else. As the story of Isaiah 1 through 39 progressed, we, we saw that the judgment placed upon Judah was exile. Babylon would forcibly remove the wealthy and the educated from Judah and Jerusalem and scatter them across the empire. And the temple eventually in Jerusalem was destroyed. But Isaiah, as we kind of kept looking at last summer, continued to give glimmers of hope that Jerusalem would pay their price, they would suffer the results and, and exile, but that was not the end of the story. There were always these glimmers of hope, these little seeds being planted. And you think back to, if you remember last summer, or maybe you need to go and brush up on Isaiah 1 through 39 this afternoon. Might take you a little bit longer than this afternoon. But there was one, one of the images that Isaiah gave was of Judah being this great tree. And what happened to the tree? Do you remember what happened to the tree? All right, the tree gets cut down. 
Judah was the tree. They get cut down. They're, they're kind of uh, cut down because uh, of their unfaithfulness. And yet Isaiah says something is left behind. What's left behind? A stump. And out of that stump comes a shoot. New life. The promise of hope that this is not the end of the story. Right? And that image of hope continues to shine in the second part of Isaiah. I was asked last summer by someone uh, why we weren't just marching through the whole book of Isaiah in one stretch. First of all, that's a lot of Isaiah, 66 chapters. So it would have taken us a while. Maybe some of you were already getting tired of Isaiah. Maybe some of you are like, oh man, here we go again. Um, That's all right. Uh, But it was a lot to chew if we just continued to march through. And so part of the reason we split it up is to give us a break. But secondly, there's something kind of odd that happens here between 39 and 40. And I mentioned already that it's 200 years of history that happen. The historical context shifts drastically between these two chapters. The perspective of the Jewish people has shifted and suddenly we're not looking forward at exile. Remember at the end of chapter 39, Hezekiah is looking forward at exile. In chapter 40, all of a sudden the perspective has changed and they're seeing this glimmer of hope start to happen, start to emerge. Comfort, oh comfort my people. Because something different is happening. They're looking back at exile, or beginning to look back at exile, and forward to a grand vision of restoration. And not just the restoration of the temple of Jerusalem, but really looking forward to God's grand restoration. And they're dreaming really big dreams and having really big visions of what God is doing in the world. I shared a a link in the June newsletter, and I'll try and send it out as uh, uh, part of our announcements this week. Um, It's a video from Bible Project that if you forgot chapters 1 through 39 and you're not going to fit it in all this afternoon, in about eight minutes, you can get a video recap. And, I, you know, I, standard practice for me in high school is if there was a video and I could watch the video, the, the book's really good too. You should read the book. <laughs> all right. But if you need a video, you can uh, recap on the video. Well, what are the reasons why there's 200 years inserted here? Option A, and some folks follow this, and that's fine, there's nothing wrong with this, um, is that uh, Isaiah the prophet has been prophetically transported 200 years into the future to write down what he sees, and then he, he, he keeps those secret. He binds those up, and he has his disciples hold on to those for 200 years. And after that time, they unroll it and they read it. Option B is that Isaiah that we've been introduced to in the 8th century hands off his scrolls of judgment at the end of 39 and his scrolls of, of hope to his disciples who keep the scrolls. Read and study them. And as they begin to emerge from exile, they add to the scrolls. 
They see Isaiah's words in chapters 1 through 39 and they see how they're coming true. They're catching those glimmers of hope and they're excited about what God is doing and they say, we've got to, we've got to add on to this. We, we've got to write about how this is coming true. And they start to add on to these scrolls. They continue to see God's movement towards restoration and hope. I'll say today it is largely accepted that there are two parts of Isaiah. Uh, many commentaries will talk about first Isaiah and second Isaiah. Katie said, what are, what are we talking this week? And I said, well, we're talking about first Isaiah and second Isaiah. And she kind of looked at me. Right, there's not first Isaiah and second Isaiah in, in your Bibles. It's one book. But often we talk about first Isaiah and second Isaiah. Or you want to get real technical, you call it Deutero-Isaiah, and then you sound like you've had lots of extra years of schooling. I'll say, although we never find fragments or just one part of Isaiah, it's always one book. It's always together. In fact, back, a little bit of history for you. 1947, uh, there's a shepherd out in the Middle East and he's playing around and throwing rocks back in caves and he throws a rock back and uh, he breaks a pot. It's a very old pot. And rather than running away and hiding, like I probably would have done if I were a kid throwing rocks back and I broke something, he goes in and discovers it and then he goes and gets somebody else and what they find is what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were ancient scrolls from before the time of Jesus that a group of uh, Jewish people had gone out into the wilderness and hidden in clay jars. And they opened these up. And one of the things that they find in there is the scroll of Isaiah in its complete entirety, chapters 1 through 66. One of the amazing things is it reflects the same Isaiah that we were using in 1947. So uh, a document that's been buried for a couple thousand years hadn't changed. Still was the story of Isaiah. Isaiah 1 through 39 covered the Assyrian invasion of Israel from 720 B.C. to King Hezekiah's rebellion in 705. Judah continued in a downward spiral of bad kings with the exception of Josiah who tried to reform things, tried to, to make things better, tried to be a more faithful king, faithful to who God was calling him to be. But the spiral had continued. The, the, the path was set and so God's people are forced into exile. Josiah is killed in an attempted uprising for independence. Judah becomes a, a vassal state of Egypt for a time. And then under the, the, the thumb of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and destroyed the city and the temple and exiles the wealthy elite Jewish folks. And this is where we get Daniel. This is where uh, some of those stories, Jeremiah, start entering in historically. We fast forward to Cyrus the Great of Persia who conquers Babylon in 539. And whereas Assyria and Babylon tried to exile people and tried to force their own religion, uh, Persia had a different way. They, they preferred um, religious freedom 
And they allowed people to, to uh, worship in their own temples. And they just kind of preferred that if you could add Cyrus in as one of your gods, that would be great. Or at least recognize that he is uh, this gracious, benevolent uh, dictator, um, emperor. At least recognize him. And we actually see that in, in, in the book of Isaiah um, where um, Isaiah actually refers to Cyrus as the Messiah, as God's anointed. Okay, and so we see that uh, history playing out in Scripture itself. Similar words pop up there in Isaiah. As part of Cyrus' practice of religious tolerance, he allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and that's where we get Ezra and Nehemiah. So there's, here's where these books of the Bible fall in. Now sometimes in the church today, we can take a very simplified view of how we got our scriptures today. For me, when I was growing up, I was kind of handed the Bible at different ages. You know, we got the kid's Bible, and then we got like the teen Bible, and we, then we got the uh, adult Bible. We do the same thing here. It's a wonderful thing to encourage uh, our, our kids and our youth and our adults to be reading scripture, to be diving into it, to be understanding those stories. That's good, that's what we should teach our kids and then expand a bit for our youth. But sometimes we stop there. Many books of the Bible don't tell us who the author is. Sometimes we have the idea that one person received direct revelation from God and sometimes that's the case. John's revelation is, is, some, is a vision that John receives, right? Um, other times, what is written down are stories that are passed from generation to generation and finally written down. We know, for example, that Luke's version of the gospel is basically a research paper and a series of interviews. He tells us that. He said, I investigated these stories. I went around and I listened to people share their experience of Jesus. And he writes it down. And so different books of the Bible are received in a little bit different way. But then the text needed to be copied and sometimes even edited. Inspiration of Scripture is much more dynamic and communal than sometimes we have thought or sometimes maybe that we're comfortable with. It appears that Isaiah has at least two major compositional movements or periods. It means it appears that someone is writing chapters 1 through 39 and someone else is writing chapters 40 through 66. Let me pause here a moment. That there's two writers of Isaiah, probably. Different people debate that. That's fine. How does that make you feel? Or to know that scripture, you know, is copied and passed on and copied and passed on. How does that make you feel? I'll tell you, when I started learning about that, it made me nervous. It made me unsure. I didn't know how to deal with that. 
because I had always just been handed the Bible and maybe I had read some introductory notes that are in our Bibles, um, which are just the very tip of the iceberg in the vast research that people do into Scripture. And so I wasn't sure what to make of having multiple authors. And I remember sitting in some of my early Bible classes and being introduced to some of these conversations and being uneasy with those conversations. I thought Bible classes were supposed to make things easier to understand, not more complicated. Scripture is meant to be something that we meditate on day and night. It's something that we are supposed to spend our lifetimes investing in, soaking in, marinating in, allowing it to just flood over us and, and change who we are as we read and ponder and meditate day in and day out. It's something that we're invited to sink deep into. And so over time, here's some of the things I've grown to love even more about Scripture. I'm so grateful that God breathed inspiration into those original writers, maybe Moses and Isaiah and Matthew and John. But I'm also grateful and in awe that God continued to inspire and guide the process of passing down our scriptures and working with humanity in the transmission of God's story. The amazing thing about Isaiah is that although we're pretty certain it is written in at least two different people in two different ages, it only ever appears in one single form. What that scroll says when it was buried in 125 B.C. until 1947, the text hadn't changed. The copying process undertaken by Jewish scribes and Christian monks hadn't altered the text. That's a long time for humans to be copying something and still have the same form, to still say the same thing. Scripture's God-breathed. These questions and pursuits for me haven't eroded my confidence in Scripture. Being intellectually honest has also allowed me to see a more beautiful image of a living, breathing Word of God. The beautiful way that God inspired original writers and the community of faith. You know, you and I continue to read, most of us, in English translations, so many translations, it's the continual process of reading and understanding Scripture. Uh, our, our Scripture readers in the last couple of weeks have uh, discovered something very interesting about uh, the version of Scripture that we use um, for public reading here in our worship services. We use the NRSV. It's the translation you have in the uh, Pew Bibles. The NRSV today is actually different than it was a year ago. They've updated it. And so now you go and it's the NRSV updated edition. New Revised Standard Version updated edition because they needed new words to express how new it is. They do that with the NIV. They do that with the uh, New American Standard Version just has a, a, a newer update. 
And so our wrestling with Scripture continues. That's really important for us, that we continue to read God's Word, that we continue to to think about what it means, that we continue to soak it in. Besides the text not changing, here's something else about the two parts of Isaiah as we move into the second half this summer. The first part of Isaiah, Judah is being warned about ramifications of judgment and for turning away from Yahweh. They're being warned about idol worship that brought down Israel. They're being warned about trusting military alliances over over relying on Yahweh. Isaiah is revealing all of this would lead to exile. But he also gives a message of hope. That even in cutting down of the great tree that Jerusalem believed itself to be, there was a new shoot. That underneath the death and destruction and exile, Yahweh was going to be bringing something new to life. And then 200 years later, Isaiah's students pick up the story. And the vision of hope continues to grow. The vision of a restored temple, but something even greater, of a restored universe, of new heavens and new earth, of what God is doing in the life of the world. And so this two-part setup of Isaiah should speak hope and encouragement to you and I today, especially the church in the West, the church in the United States. Although we've entered what some have called a post-Christian society, although we may have to live through a time of exile where we are not at home and where some of us weep beside the waters of Babylon for the good old days, exile is not the end of the story. Isaiah saw that exile was not the end. The second part of Isaiah tells us that exile is not the end. The story of Jesus, John's revelation, the hope that we cling to in the church is that exile and punishment for sin, death and destruction is not the end of the story. May God continue to weave God's story in and through our lives. May our faith and our faithfulness continue to grow. And may we continue to hold on and actively participate in the hope of Jesus for the entire world. Amen. Going to invite us to stand and turn in your blue hymnal to number 174. As we sing together, blessed be the God of Israel. Would you stand?